0: Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode Monsters Incorporated. I'm Paula Sizek, and today we have our CEO, Lucy Chung, joining. Lucy, why don't you introduce yourself?
1: Hi. Hello. Um, I'm Lucy, as Paula said. Um, I'm actually rejoining Nobel after five years away. Bud and I co-founded it together at his kitchen table. Um, So it's been really nice to be back in the fold. In between leaving the first time and coming back, I've done organizational design and development in-house at a fashion company, and also worked with some other consultancies in a similar space. Um, yeah, so I'm just excited to be back. And this is definitely a, a new experience for me. I've never recorded a podcast, so this is really interesting. <laughs> Yay. Well, Welcome. Yeah, we're, we're
0: glad to have you, both here in the podcast Student studio and uh, in Nobel as an organization. Good to hear. And then, of course, we also have my colleague, Jane Garza. Hello. So, in case you didn't know, we are members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that transforms company cultures. And every month, we like to take a break from helping the real organizations that we work with change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations, what works, what doesn't. And then most importantly, we'll give you some ideas for some of the simple tools that they and you, our listeners, can implement to make the workplace better.
1: So to give a little summary, Mike and Sully are monsters who work at a company called Monsters, Inc., Um, the business scares children to produce the powers that run Monstropolis, the city they're in. (laughs) Sully's on track to beat the all-time scare record when an adorable human toddler, who looks like my daughter, by the way, Boo looks exactly like my daughter, um, makes it through the closet door, threatening everything they knew. Spoiler alert from here on out. So
0: aside from being a adorable story, an adorable, heartwarming story about a monster and his two-year-old toddler, I found this was actually a dramatic, incisive study of an industry in crisis (laughs) and a whistleblowing Mm -hmm. scandal. So we're going to get into that a little bit later. Uh, But let's start a little bit with the setting. So I did some research into Pixar, and according to them, they actually based the Monsters, Inc. factory On the ideal of a post-World War II baby boom factory, right? So you've got that classic factory aesthetic. But as violent films and television and video games have become more prevalent in human society, children's have become harder to scare, which is leading to a scream shortage. (laughs) That's hard to say. Scream shortage, which is where we start the movie. So what do we tend to see culturally when an organization is failing to perform? It's not meeting its quota. Hmm. I mean, so
2: the very clear thing that's happening at Monsters, Inc. is a total fear of failure. I think once things start to fail, um, the failure to perform starts to happen, people just double down on the fear and they just go back to the basics around what they've already known how to do um, and get really stuck in those patterns, which you can see a little bit here.
1: I think we're also seeing that classic fiefdom culture, where mm-hmm. no longer working as a team. I mean, the leaderboard, which I know we'll get to, also encourages that. But there is a there is an aspect of every man for himself, or every monster every monster
0: for himself. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, let's let's be correct here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> every monster for themselves. Um, yeah, some
0: territory grabbing. Yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, I
1: think that, that that's really real. That they're everyone's. It's so rivalristic, which I think we definitely see that um, in our, in our client environments where departments will sort of like buckle down on just their functional goals or just their area and sort of to, to the, um, expense of cross collaboration and working as one big team. Um, and like even sometimes when, when we come in to help with purpose and vision, um, I, I often want that work to kind of counteract that fiefdom culture, because ideally, if you have one big picture direction, it'll mitigate some of the rivalistic tendencies that people have within organizations.
0: So how do you start talking to leaders who are dealing with this culture of fear who want to change things up, right? You say purpose and vision, like, how do you get them on board with that? How do you convince them that's where they need to start as opposed to, I don't know, just getting the work done or moving faster?
1: I mean, I think it depends on the leader, right? Like know know your audience first. So some may not be ready to have that conversation. But I think to start, it's just to point out the symptoms of fear and to ensure that they're seeing them too. So to talk about um, the rivalry, to talk about what fear looks like in an organization at at scale, um, and to get aligned on the fact that they're in fact in that situation. Because sometimes, Mm -hmm. like, I think we walk into clients sometimes and they don't know what's what is happening at scale or what the root cause is and we have to actually point out the things we're seeing like we were just talking about a client like that this week Mm -hmm. where we're seeing a lot of a lot of symptoms of something but we don't know if it's fear driven or change fatigue or Mm -hmm. any number of so first is just to send a level set of okay well where are we at does this client agree how aligned are they about the diagnosis, and then talk about the prognosis or what we might want to do with that problem.
0: What are some of the symptoms of fear? Like, how do you know watching Monsters, Inc., which, after all, bases its economy on fear, how do you know that they're concerned? What do we typically see in organizations that we work with? Well, I think
2: Lucy's first point about land grabbing is a real one. I think people protect themselves when they don't know... um, They don't know how to protect the company or their team anymore. Right. So the first piece is just turning against one another and protecting themselves as an act of that.
1: If leadership and management is spotty, which is pretty typical at an old, you know, Fortune 1000 company, um, and there has been um, any sort of mass layoff, that there is fear, period. There's not, there's no question that. Because that if this if the management's body, it means that people don't know what to do to progress and to be developed, and they don't know if they're going to be the next one's cut or if their best friend's going to be the next one cut, and it means the comms have been really poor about the decisions that led to that. So mm. there is going to be fear around whether or not their jobs are, their job security. Um, we yeah. definitely, I, I mean, we have that at a lot of our clients where there's a fair bit of scar tissue for, that has been created from um, big layoff pushes and restructurings that without effective communication.
2: The other thing to your question about how do you know if there's a culture of fear, if there's like a fear is very pervasive, I think, you can tell because people's actions are coming from a place of survival right like mm-hmm. anything they do that just any decision they make is will this help me survive inside the company or will this help my role survive and that might look like land grabbing it might make um, make it might look like them making their role look irreplaceable like only I could ever do this thing, which we've mm. seen a lot of leaders that are a little bit more toxic. It might look like people being afraid of bringing up certain topics because they think that if they do that, their hand will get slapped. Um, but if you see a lot of that r- like reflexive behavior of just trying to protect and survive, that's that means there's a, a whole lot of fear in the organization, which I think is the one that you're referencing. We sh- we're seeing a lot of that right now.
0: Mm-hmm. So <laughs> what I'm hearing from you guys is that Monsters, Inc. is actually overlooking a really potent source of energy in the organizations in America. There's, there's a lot of fear <laughs> yeah. and screams that could be tapped into too. Sure. <laughs> Power.
1: Apparently it's only children, so I don't know if that would actually, I don't know if it would work. Okay,
0: so this is actually beyond the scope of this particular podcast, but if you watch Monsters <laughs> University, you'll discover that in fact, Adult screams are more potent; they're just harder mm. because adults aren't as afraid of oh, monsters.
1: Oh, okay. So they target children because they're more likely to get exactly,
0: exactly. So that was the extra credit question. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> uh, there's there's a real clear hierarchy of status within Monsters Inc. Right when the mm-hmm. when the scares get out on the floor, they get this heroic slow motion entrance, and everybody stares at them in awe. How does this sort of power differential between employees impact organizational culture?
2: It's so common. It happens I think in almost every organization. We were just talking today about like agency culture and how there's like the client-facing people and then the not client-facing mm-hmm. people and how the client-facing people can often be looked at as the stars because they're technically bringing in the money, but you you need all these other people to keep a business running and support you and and help create an environment in which you can spend time with clients. Um, so it is really common, but I think it just creates this awful feeling where one group is the group of superstars and the other group is, you know, um, chop liver.
1: I mean, I think the biggest, the biggest way that I personally um, have issue with how it plays out is that often the heroic roles are filled by predominantly males and the Mm. marginalized or the less celebrated roles are filled by women particularly yes in the agency world but also like we see it in finance where hr yeah hr Mm. hr being the the marginalized non Mm -hmm. quote-unquote non-billable or cost center versus like the sales team might be customer
0: service is also like that non-billable and i will point out in monsters inc it does appear that most of the monsters the top scarers, rather are men, but also yeah.
1: so are the whatever you call the wing people, the wing monsters, like the the kind of whatever Mike's role. It what are they called? What's yeah, their they're, they're assistants? They're I also don't know if they also seem to all be men, though. Yes, yeah. the women are. This is what's it's really bad. The women are the yeah. secretary Celia Wheelia or whatever her her name, and then, um, Roz, Roz. Roz. <laughs> I almost mm-hmm. called her Gladys, Roz. <laughs> So they've really done it. They've really created the ultimate stereotype of where the women typically fall and where the men.
0: And again, this is based off of a post-World War II factory. And so I think in many ways, it is reflective of what you would see in that time frame. Um, I just think it's interesting. I want to do a Mm -hmm. whole video essay on Pixar's perception of the organization because Again, this is an extra credit, but The Incredibles is also sort of set during this this mm. time period. It's during the 60s, mm-hmm. and you see uh, Mr. Incredible Bob working in this soulless cubicle farm, which is mm-hmm. also terrible in its its own unique way. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I yeah. guess
1: on one hand, I'm 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 kind of down for the accuracy and the historical representation. On the other, this is a kids' movie, and it does Bob. It, it feels irresponsible that that children are watching something that is being that is so gendered in that way like they could easily break that rule even yeah. if still while yeah. still upholding most of the historically accurate i would have liked to have seen them break the gender stereotypes in the in the movie like yeah. i'm really bummed that all the main monsters are men
2: <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely going back to your um your topic of just like the hierarchy and how there are certain superstars i think the biggest challenge around that is most of the research around teams and teaming shows that you really need like yes sure you need the people who can slam dunk a ball you also need people who just are really good at passing the ball and are really good at at helping support the rest of their team members and that hierarchical celebration of just the the star athletes kind of takes away any spotlight from your, like, fire preventers. So don't just think about your firefighters, but think about those fire preventers behind the scenes, too.
0: And not only is there a hierarchy of scarers and assistants and everybody else at the organization, but there is also a hierarchy of scarers, right? You've got your leadership board to track who's the top scarer. How does competition influence culture?
1: Oh, hugely. I mean, one like that, I mean, that one's really really aggressive um competition i mean with the leaderboard up on the wall and the fact that they they seem to have like i mean the the award i guess is this really public celebration of when they've hit an all-time what do they call it they call it top scare record or something yeah
2: yeah top scare yeah
1: i mean that would that would drive almost all behaviors for the entire organization like down to You know, the the paperwork being turned, all of it, all of it would lead up to just that leaderboard. It would, that's what they've done in that. It all, it is all centered around who is on that leaderboard and what place they're in.
2: Yeah. So... Yeah. And I think there's healthy versions of competitive cultures on our on our model of like the four type four flavors of cultures. One of them is very competitive. There's a healthy version of that. But you have to have the nuance there to make sure that it stays healthy. The unhealthy version Mm. is like cutting corners, um, beating each other at all costs and worrying more about beating each other versus like getting better than yourself or getting better than the existing best practice inside your company. And that's, like, kind of a big difference because the first one results in a lot of corner cutting or cheating or what have you, which ends up happening in this movie. And the second one creates innovation. If it's, like, just about getting better and trying to approach problems in new ways, then you're you're actively supporting that innovation.
1: It's interesting, though. Even though I, I agree, there's definitely healthy versions of it. And yet, I'm just thinking about this at Nobel. We don't do any explicit competitions that I can think of?
0: Well, you're just not in on them, Lucy. Oh, okay. Well,
1: maybe I've <laughs> <There's>... been excluded. <laughs> we should talk about what exclusion does. <laughs> but I, I don't, see you know, even from a sales perspective, so obviously we we sell our services. That's what our business model is built off of. Selling and, things, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we don't have we don't have top salespeople awards and we we even even so far as location by location we actually incentivize the opposite which is the cross-pollination and the sharing of both revenue and practices for ensuring that we're doing well as a Mm -hmm. global collective rather Mm -hmm. than i mean i think that that might be because what we've done is we've placed the 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 impact we want to have as larger than any so the competition we have is with the with the Yeah. The opposite of what we're trying to create, right? Yeah. Is like is the suffering inside organizations, etc. And I feel like what they've done at Monsters Inc. is they've sort of forgotten that powering the city is actually the bigger and so the 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 power outage or the lack of power is actually the bigger of enemy. They've instead created all of the competition as internal and organizational. Yeah.
2: Right. I think that's the big difference is like the healthiest version of competition is usually it's still us versus them. But rather than us marketing versus them sales or us California sales versus New York sales, it's us, this company or this um, brand within this versus the rest of the industry or versus this other company outside of us. And that way you're competing with someone else in the market versus this like internal fighting. Yeah.
1: That's exactly right, and Nobel I think does a really amazing job at that. Like I think we have a really beautifully built, cohesive team that is against not the not even yeah. the industry. I think it's against the the norms, mm-hmm. the corporate and organizational norms. It's good.
0: So we have this highly competitive, highly hierarchical organization on the one hand at the same time we have this cultural belief the monsters believe that humans are toxic and even something as innocuous as a sock can lead to a code 2319
3: right Twenty (laughs) three nineteen.
0: a monster is clearly shaken when he's almost touched by a child while attempting to scare it Mm -hmm. so from the monster's perspective they're working in a hazardous environment Right? Like they are actually, these are the equivalent of coal miners, Mm -hmm. essentially, who are risking life and limb on a daily basis to provide people with power. So, how can companies help employees manage stress or ideally create healthier workplaces if we're talking about a a hazardous environment?
2: One of my favorite uh, resources around organizational design, my favorite favorite, is this story from Invisibilia about um, an HBR professor who worked with people on an oil rig trying to create more um, trust with the folks who work there because it's such a high stress, very dangerous role where they would literally see like their colleagues of 20 years die in front of them um, and be really struck by that. The article talks about how this HBR professor who um, she came in and basically taught them vulnerability and taught them to talk about the risk. And it created this huge difference between like them never talking about it, never owning up to when they couldn't do the job by themselves or when they were feeling down or whatever it is to then completely turning around and being able to have those conversations. And it made a huge shift in how much safer that oil rig was too it ended up impacting like how safe mm. the the ultimate outcome is because they could have those conversations and see preemptively oh this might happen this person's not feeling up to it today versus you know 50 years ago where they would just not say it and some huge accident would happen wow yeah it's a really incredible story i highly highly recommend yeah, listening that to
1: it yeah sounds amazing um Okay, so I think that's one, is the power of vulnerability and having those honest dialogues. Yeah. That's one way to address the stress and the kind of nature of hazardous work. Um, I mean, there's the the obvious hazardous work like mining and like some of the more dangerous physical jobs. And then there's the hazard of literally working in any late-stage capitalist organization. Mm -hmm. Like there is the hazard of all of our clients are in different, obviously quite different from... I think, what the Monsters, Inc. um, group is experiencing. But the current state, the current climate of um, corporate culture is hazardous. It is hazardous. I mean, we're seeing that. We see pervasive burnout. We see sicknesses like like that, stress-related illness on the rise. Um, So I think everything we do, literally from check-in rounds to... The way that we run retrospectives, the way that we are, all of our processes, all the tools that we um, initiate are all supposed to mitigate the hazards of the current work conditions. Well, so Paula just wrote what I thought was amazing. So please, I would advise going to check out the full post on check-ins. We can add a link in the notes. That's great. Um, So Nobel does something that we actually borrowed from Holacracy, which is borrowed from sociocracy which is a way is a set of organizing principles that is quite dogmatic we took certain tools from that and certain tools we left behind but i think this tool in particular is amazing which is at the beginning of a meeting any meeting Um, Each person goes around and shares what they're bringing to the meeting. When we say that, we mean literally what's on their mind that's keeping them from being present. Okay. So the four reasons that we do a check-in are cognitive offloading, which is sort of what I just covered around. What are you bringing to the meeting that's keeping you from being present? Mm -hmm. Um, Actually saying it out loud allows for it to actually come off your brain in some way. So it'll stop cycling through your head and hopefully allow you to be more present So that's one. The second is to create psychological safety, which I'm sure we've talked about on Mm -hmm. our podcast before. It's one of the things we talk about frequently. It's definitely part of um, creating psychological safety allows for the vulnerability. Mm -hmm. The reason that we emphasize it this much is also because it's been scientifically proven to be, to create effective teams. Google did a massive study called Project Aristotle that show that the, the number one um, differentiator between effective teams and ineffective teams was that everyone felt psychologically safe. Um, it also means that you can um, show up and say something or do something that might fail. It's sort of an openness for that test and learn and that possibility of failure that i really can't underline enough it sounds so simple cuz we all talk about this test and learn experimental blah, blah blah agile but actually the ability to show up with a group of people that you didn't grow up with you know that you aren't that you don't have a deep deep ongoing long standing relationship with and be able to do something that might be a mistake is a huge deal the fact that i feel that with the nobel team i don't take that for granted so that mm. that other aspect um The third one is anticipating miscommunications. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it teams are 30% more effective if they – there's some stat on that one. But anyway, I think if you you check in, you're more likely to anticipate when challenges are going to come up and then more effectively deal with them together. Yeah, like for example,
2: if I said I'm – I'm having a rough morning. I got, like, my family member's in the hospital. Then Lucy knows, like, oh, I'm probably not going to have a one-on-one with Jay today and give her some hard feedback. I'll exactly. wait until tomorrow. Rather than having that one-on-one and then having it not go great and not knowing what was going on. Yeah, so we, recently,
1: we recently had one where um a client said that she'd lost her best friend that mm. morning. and mm. And then she seemed pretty despondent during the session. And instead of us thinking that woman was totally disengaged and maybe even potentially feeding back to the person who brought us in to run the workshop that certain individuals seem instead we know, oh, she's actually dealing with grief. She's in bereavement. Mm-hmm. So that was those are the kinds of things I think that Yeah. Um, and then the fourth is priming contributions, which because of my devout feminism, I really love this one, which is that if you speak up in the first 10 minutes of a meeting, you're much more likely to speak up in the remainder of the meeting. Um, And so from an inclusion perspective, I find that one particularly compelling because it means that certain domineering voices won't necessarily drown out others that don't necessarily feel as comfortable being assertive. Um, So yeah, we always do. We always start every meeting. Like this morning, we all had a team meeting. We started with a check-in round.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about a very influential character, the CEO, Mr. Waternoose. (laughs) I had actually, you know, I'd seen this years ago, and I had assumed that it was actually a utility company. But he is a family-owned business. Mr. Waternoose says that it has been in his family for three generations. How does his attitude and leadership style influence the culture of Monsters, Inc.?
1: Wait, can a utility company not be privately owned? It can Right or you th- you thought it was government?
0: Yeah, I program. thought it. I thought it yeah, was like a mm-hmm. you know. I didn't think this was a Tesla or anything. I thought this was you know the Department of Water and Power. Right, right. So, yeah, how does his attitude and leadership style influence the culture?
1: I, it changed for me because at first I didn't mind him mm-hmm. for the first half of the movie. I was, I even wrote it down because he says he comes in during that simulation where they're doing like, um, they're, which by the way, we, I don't think we have, we are going to cover this, but they do amazing training. They do. <laughs> like the yeah. primary, they have, right. a, whole, <laughs> That's they have true. a whole, like, um, this like, that was quite rare. Like they have a whole onboarding setup where they bring all the new, whatever, the like, scarers into like a fully a pre- quite expensive from a mm-hmm. facilities perspective. Bedroom with a fake baby, a fake kid. Blah, blah. That was amazing. Yeah, I was yeah. really impressed. And they only have three or four people watching at a time and getting live feedback. So anyway, Waternoose walks in or is there for and, um, and reminds everyone of the bigger purpose and tells everyone of the story. And clearly he does this all the time.
3: Our city is counting on you to collect those children's screams. Without scream, we have no power. Yes, it's dangerous work, and that's why I need you to be at your best. I need scarers who are confident, tenacious, tough, intimidating.
1: From a CEO perspective, that's what I like to yeah. see a CEO sort of bang that gong a bunch of times throughout a month or whatever to say, this is why we're here, this is what we do. So at first I thought, okay, here's the CEOs checking off some boxes. Yeah. Um, but then we know later he's... Not what he seemed. Right. I mean,
2: he, yeah, he's an <laughs> evil guy. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. He he not only does that at the training session, but he also um, he takes the time to praise one of his high performers. Mm-hmm. And in particular, there's two high performers, one that is a little bit more positive, gets along with more people. And then there's one that's like really competitive and a little bit scarier. And then we find out ultimately pretty evil. But he takes the time to praise the the more positive, like team building high performer, which felt like a good sign for him. Yeah. Um. But yeah, ultimately I think his his he's the one acting out of survival. He's acting out of pure fear. He's like I will do anything to keep this company alive and that never ends up well for the people that you're um who who work under you, right? Cuz you're you're just trying to survive at all costs.
1: And he's not just trying to survive the company, he's trying to survive from a family reputation thing which I don't I've actually I've only worked with a few businesses where it's been a family owned and then family inherited, right? It's not just that the family owners are sort of in the background, like not really as involved. I've, I've very rarely been exposed to when leader to leader is like, it's literally handed down family member to family member, but a good friend works strictly with family foundations like that. Mm -hmm. And the challenges that come with a nepotistic um, chain of command like that are really unique to that, because there's a whole host of other challenges, like, like Succession. I think we did. We did. We did a set. Yeah. It's a really unique. So he's not, mm-hmm. it's quite personalized for him. He oh, he says constantly that it's been in the family for yeah, a long it's time. it's his legacy. Yeah. So yeah. it's not just that he's, it's not like investors are breathing down his neck. It's, yeah, it's his legacy. Legacy on that front is... That's huge.
2: Yeah. That's... They, they do talk about a board of directors at one point, and I was like shocked that that was happening in a children's movie. I thought that was really funny <laughs> that they got down to that much detail about business.
3: The day. We're just going through a rough time, sir. Everyone knows you're going to get us through it. Uh, Show that to the board of directors.
0: One thing I noticed about Waternoose in particular, but you hear this phrase repeated several times throughout the movie, is this idea of that employees need to do things for the good of the company, mm. right? You know, think of the company. We can't afford another PR snafu.
3: This company can't afford any more bad publicity. Now, before we do anything else, let's take care of the child. Oh, I never thought things would come to this. Not at my factory. I'm sorry you boys got mixed up in this, especially you, James. But now we can set everything straight again for the good of the company.
0: What are some of the dangers of this approach of always saying, like, think of the company?
2: Mm. I think for one, people have just seen that go wrong so many times and also seen that I think in the past companies cared a little bit more for people. Like they would set you up with a good retirement if you stuck around for a long time. That's no longer the case. Um, the you know workforce just looks different, um, and people have seen it go badly. They've seen like uh, awful leaders take companies into bad directions. And so when you say for the good of the company, I think people just don't buy it. Like they can't trust that your motives are at the same place that your that your personal motives are.
1: I think that or they don't – or different people interpret that differently. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Sure. Definitely we've seen some really terrible versions of that We're doing it for the good of the company could mean Theranos. You know, that could be – Yeah, that's doing doing off it red, good of red it's off red flags for me. Yeah. yeah. But it also could be that um, – if without clear vision and goals and sort of all the things that we often find ourselves addressing inside our clients, if that isn't – it doesn't exist, then sales guy one versus, mm-hmm. you know, someone in another department could actually see those t- – the saying doing the good for the company as two totally different things in terms of what actions they might take to do that. Um, so I just think that's such a – it's a really unhelpful mandate. Yeah. <laughs> do it for the good of the company.
0: Of course we can't forget Randall, who is the scheming coworker and second best scarer. Yeah. We all have a Randall in our past or current work life. <laughs> I hope not our current work
1: life. Well, we could be speaking to people who don't work. Oh at my Nobel. god, am I am I the Randall?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh so so Randall, I mean he bullies Mike He's he's really nasty and unsupportive to his assistant. He's fine with torturing children. He's voiced by Steve Buscemi. Uh, so how do you deal with a toxic
2: colleague? <laughs> oh, God. It's a great question because I think you are right, Lucy. I think most people have either felt this or are feeling this currently. I think it just depends on what stage of the relationship you are with that toxic colleague. Like If you've just joined a new company or or that colleague just joined your team and it's new, I think you lead with a bit of curiosity and a bit of honesty. Um, Like, hey, when you said this, it sounded like you meant this. Was that what you meant? Is that how you were trying to come across? Um, And see if you can get anywhere that way. That's like early stage. I think later stage, I think what you do is you communicate to someone after you've communicated to them and nothing has changed i think you communicate with someone else whether it's your manager or hr Mm -hmm. whoever you keep your receipts like you keep some some proof of what's going on um and then the third thing is you take care of yourself i think sadly a lot of the time people don't companies don't always get rid of those toxic people and you'll continue to be around them and that is very energy draining and exhausting and do whatever you can to find your way of rebuilding that among it all
1: yeah i mean i I think that that response is perfectly put. I think that's obviously too when the the line is cr- has been mm-hmm. crossed. I'm th- I'm thinking so. Let's pretend just for the sake of this conversation for a second that Randall, Randall's behavior wasn't that those li- like he wasn't torturing children. Right. And the, the lines weren't crossed, right? So so actually the the let's pretend for a second that maybe talking to the manager HR is isn't quite yet where you are that there's sort of more of a nuanced you're in that earlier stage of the spectrum Mm -hmm. i i find and i learned this from a former colleague i find that especially if you're their peer not their manager which is a whole different you know giving feedback i find that um saying to the person i want to give you some feedback but i want you to want it Can you think about whether or not it's going to be hard to hear, I think? Can you think about whether or not you want to hear it and come Mm. back to me and letting them go away for the night? And they, oh, I've never had someone not come back and say, I want the feedback, right? Like no one's going to... Everyone wants to know what someone else Course. thinks of them. Morbid curiosity. Yeah. At the, and, at so, the very least. and so I think, first off, to have them opt in is good because then you feel like you're having a conversation with someone who actively wants to have it. Mm-hmm. But also, you've gotten someone who has shown up to say, like, yeah, I want to know. And then, the, my second part, a build on that is that um, if I think maybe I'm the first person to give them this feedback, like let's say it's something quite nuanced that is hurtful mm-hmm. or that it's maybe it's personality. It's something personality like, and so giving it is is potentially going to be hurtful in a way that they that you doubt that someone has had the audacity to give it to them. I will say to them, this is what I learned from, from a former colleague. If I'm if what I tell you is a grain of sand on a large pile of sand that you already have, right? You've heard this feedback before. That this is actually something. Then I would go ahead and make the changes that I'm going to suggest mm-hmm. making. But if I'm giving you something and you've never heard it before, I would suggest that you really turn it over and think about it. And then you make your own decision about whether or not you want to integrate it. And I think for them to then go away and know that I've given them a bit of a choice of whether or not they're going to choose to take it. um, I I think that's a big deal. Randall's a different story. He needs to go. Like I would not work at a company where he was allowed to torture children yeah, yeah which of course is privilege that i would be able to have a choice to not mm-hmm. work at a place where someone like that i understand that we we don't all have that mobility and freedom i like
0: how you automatically assume that in monstropolis you do have the privilege to go work somewhere oh else. Well,
1: i mean this is why i'm like yeah you probably don't that's probably like one of the only employers in town so you are gonna have to deal and i think that's why jane's path is perfect of like take care of yourself report it keep the receipts um yeah, but I think the take care of yourself thing, too. The self-care when you're dealing with the toxic co-worker is huge.
2: Yeah. Like, yeah, I, it, there are so many people I know that are still getting over toxic work experiences. Yeah,
0: yeah. workplace trauma is real.
2: I mean, we spend so much of our lives at work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: When Sully and Mike do find out about Randall's plan to suck the screams out of children, they they immediately go right to the top, right? Only to discover that WaterNoose has been in on the plan all along. Dun dun dun. How do you protect yourself if you are a whistleblower? Like if you discover something unsavory within your organization, what do you, what
2: do you do? the keep the receipts advice yeah. still stands. I think keep a, a very detailed history of what's happened. Um because whistleblower implies that it's a pretty serious situation. Yeah. The other thing oh. is there are a lot of whistleblower protection um programs it just depends on where you are i would like do a little bit of research and see if there's someone external outside of your company that can help protect you throughout this process and give you advice because those exist depending on what the situation is whether it's like sexual harassment or like just like uh risky workplaces you know dangerous work practices things like that
1: but i guess like and again like so that one That whistleblower does imply that it's something extreme, which in this case definitely was really extreme. Mm -hmm. But then I guess I'm always curious, like, what's our take on if it's not as extreme as that and you go to the top and you realize they're going to not necessarily they're in on it, but they're going to try to let it pass. Like, I'm assuming a lot of the Me Too stuff before it became the movement it is today was like this, where... You would go to someone you thought would help, and then it was sort of allowed, and then you, you had actually retaliatory behavior taken out on you because you were the one who. Yeah, I don't know. Like other than it's... leaving and taking care of yourself, I don't know how you deal with 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 when that goes on. Like if we yeah. if I if we walked in as Nobel and that was, I think we would question if there was behavior even close to that happening that was being let pass I don't I don't know if no we would probably talk about whether or not we were okay taking them on as a client like I think we would be quite extreme about oh, our oh to.
2: yeah yeah I mean I think uh what you said there's there's you can provide that information and feedback and be that voice there's little you can do when someone at the top is immoral Right. You can take it outside of the organization. I think that's why there's a lot of articles these days where people have talked to. I don't know. um, Why am I blanking on any magazine name ever? (laughs) People have talked to people at like HBR and they'll do a write up of a company and all the things going wrong inside it. I I would bet that part of the reason why that ends up happening is because they've lost any battle internally of Mm -hmm. getting change to happen.
1: Yeah, I think you're right.
2: Yeah. It's unfortunate, but it happens. And I I think at that point, like, there's little you can do. I I think it is, like, leave, protect yourself, protect your own energy.
0: Yeah. What about Roz? So in the movie, she's portrayed as this really unempathetic employee obsessed with bureaucracy. Wazowski, you didn't file your paperwork last night. But it feels like she actually could have been a resource. And, of course, later we discover she's undercover and she's been trying to blow this whole, the lid off the whole operation. How can HR and operations within companies better brand themselves as trusted resources?
2: It's such a big question. I know. (laughs) I think it's one that so many HR professionals are wrestling with right now. Uh, I think, so Paula, part of the answer is in your question. I think it's realizing that trust has been broken and you're starting from a place of deficit. You don't get to start from baseline and say, we're HR 2.0. Believe in the fact that we want to work on culture because most employees won't trust that. Um, And I think you just have to realize that and start from that place and own up to the things that maybe you haven't done correctly in the past and show a little bit of vulnerability and authenticity in that way. Um, And maybe even survey your employees, like what would you like to see differently? What would make you feel like I'm a trusted partner to you?
1: Yeah, and I would say if you're going to do that survey, like a point about the HR, if you're going to do it, make the changes. Absolutely. One of the biggest ways to build trust and to not build trust is to do a survey. Like uh, We often see this with all these culture analytics platforms, and then the results come in and you don't really do anything about them. HR is typically who administers those surveys, and so if HR is not doing even the smallest thing and then reporting back what they've done about it, um, that's going to lead to that erosion of it. The other thing I would say that I was just talking to a an HR leader about, and this does take a particular breed of HR leader that is kind of strategic enough and sort of understands how the business operates, um, is that typically you'll see HR talk much more about the foundational part of their role and how mm-hmm. what they do underpins all the activities um, of the rest of the organization. Same with finance, same with operations. But I think... The key to kind of changing that up is to when the HR leader sits hopefully on the in an executive room, which of course doesn't always happen. Sometimes an HR leader is sort of stuck outside yeah. of an executive group. But ideally, the the HR leader would then not just talk about the bottoms up foundational part of their role, but also explain and show how they're coming from the top as well. So talk about the link between the bigger business strategy and the vision of the company and how it Bridges between what they do from a foundational perspective and the the bigger picture. Um, Like I was literally just working with a client on reframing that exact challenge um, and kind of recasting herself as as a different and a more strategic enabler.
0: It's also interesting to note that the plan to use the scream sucker is literally a form of automation, right?
3: I am about to revolutionize the scaring industry. Uh,
0: A lot (laughs) of the monsters are going to be out of work after this gets implemented how can real companies deal with the need the real market need to be more productive and how should employees respond yeah this is a much bigger future of work yeah, we were question just so we, were big. Way over. we
2: were just talking about automation um It's So I think it's a big question because we don't actually know what things are going to look like. But I can still talk about what I think will happen (laughs) and how I think you can best go about it. Um, I think with automation, people often make the um, misinterpretation that it means literally replacing people. Um, But a lot of studies show and a lot of uh, researchers are talking about how automation is a little bit more about, like, the partnership between machine and human. So it's a little bit less of, like, maybe the example is, like, Augmented reality versus virtual reality. Like people often think virtual reality is the future, but really it's going to be augmented work. It's going to be us plus machinery. And I think thinking about what skills you have and develop can develop in order to be um, a healthy like portion of that mix is probably the most important piece. Mm-hmm. If you feel like you're facing automation, is there a way that you can play that partnership role alongside the potential machinery that would be a part of your day-to day in the future?
1: I think also being explicit about it, like the fact that it's going to mean different skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, like we're <clears throat> we're often dealing with functions at client organizations where it's pretty obvious that automation is going to replace some of what these people do, and yet they have and they know it too, and they haven't heard that from leadership. Mm-hmm. And leadership is is actively working to replace them with automated processes. And the fact that there is that it's going to create a fear driven set of behaviors and culture and they haven't been explicit about it. i think just talking about that, right. the advent of they under employees also understand right we all understand yeah. that that is in fact the best thing for the business the business's finances but that does need to be addressed in an explicit way in terms of how that impacts the human experience and the culture of the organization
0: speaking of the human experience and you'll see where i'm, I'm going with this According to John Goodman, who voiced Sully, Sully is like a seasoned lineman in his 10th year of his career. He is totally dedicated and a total pro. Hmm. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> but when he sees himself in the scaring simulator, which, as you pointed out, Lucy, is really top of the line technology, he realizes <laughs> how absolutely terrifying he is. And he he doesn't want to be that way anymore. So, hmm while we're dealing with automation while we're dealing with these high stress environments how do you maintain authenticity integrity and and your own values while upholding a company mission that might not align with that exactly yeah i mean this one
1: really struck me cuz when i saw him this this moment where he sees himself really struck me when he saw himself on the ca- on the video and kind of sees who he is as molded by the company, I I personally resonated with it because I definitely in my past kind of career lives overcorrected for behavior that ultimately was toxically masculine in order Mm. to succeed in the structures I was in because that was the behavior that was rewarded. And then I would see myself either through the eyes of someone I was managing or working with, or I would literally be aware of behavior because someone – in some way had sort of shown up you know maybe I saw an email I wrote or whatever it was I got the opportunity to have that Sully moment and it was awful like it was an awful Mm. moment of dissonance and disgust in myself that I had that I had modulated in order to Mm -hmm. essentially get ahead um and so I do think, number one, it's important to, to have those moments, right? Like whether it's the video or it's you have a trusted person that you know is going to hold you accountable for being true to you. why um, so I, I think that's one is just to, to make sure that those moments, those inflection points are built in. Um, I, but I think the other thing is like, what do you do once you've had that moment and you realize that the organization you're in has rewarded behaviors that you actually don't think are in line with what you value? Um, because I went about it as trying to change the organization I was in, which is probably why I'm in the business I'm in now. <laughs> <laughs> right. But and it didn't work because I was like I had n- I didn't have the toolkit I have now, and I was also one woman fighting seven men about behaviors that they found to be natural and normal. Yeah. Um, and and it and it does also put you in a spot of your. If, that, if that's a battle you choose to fight, you're fighting only that battle and you don't get to show up as anything else other mm-hmm. than the person fighting this battle around the culture. Um, so so yeah, I think this is a conversation and internally and externally that I'm having pretty consistently of like what do you do to be in integrity with, with what you believe and your own values while upholding a, a company mission that is usually in opposition to that if you're honest with yourself. Yeah, I don't know. I'll stop there because I have more thoughts on it. But I'm curious to hear what Jane thinks.
2: I I think it's a fascinating conversation. I think that uh, I think what you said was interesting around, I guess, we teach a lot of leaders to think about their kind of like triggers you might call it you called them a hot button earlier today Paula because I think the word trigger by trigger (laughs) yeah the word trigger has been used so much everywhere it has a very specific connotation (laughs) it does it does
0: in the United States today and so I want to make sure yeah, yeah, yeah it's a good point
2: yeah so we teach leaders to think about those hot buttons and to recognize moments in which maybe they're not being the type of leader that they want to be or that doesn't feel authentic to them um I think that once you recognize that the second part is figuring out why that feels inauthentic mm. i think you have a really like concise reason why and it's really clear um i don't know if if sully does but i think that's an interesting piece too is exploring a little bit of why and then once you know why why does this feel so inauthentic to me and so against how i would naturally act i think that the next question is is there do i think that other people are feeling that way probably Like we know that diversity is a problem in most companies. Most people are hiding a bit of their authenticity in order to fit in in some way or another. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, is there like a little baby step that I can take to get started on bringing just a little bit more authenticity? It doesn't mean like, yeah, tomorrow we all come in and and bring our whole selves to work because we know that that kind of doesn't work too. Um, But maybe there's something that you can do just to start with. That's why we do check-ins because it's such an easy, bite-sized, hard to argue with thing right it's hard for people to say no i don't want to spend two minutes to be a little bit more honest at the top of a meeting um so i would start there but it's it's definitely not a there's no easy solve and i think time is like part of that that process too but such an interesting question the
1: baby step one is interesting and i would say to to even add on to that um so one of the things that i often talk about particularly um female colleagues or clients, but it ha- I think it's true for, for men as well, but it just particularly comes up with women, um, is that they feel like their inauthentic self when they're not being, um, they're not showing their full spectrum of emotionality in a meeting or in, in a work setting. Mm-hmm. And so they'll say something to me like, oh, and I get really emotional and I have to stifle back tears or I, I, I stifle back kind of something that would be perceived potentially as volatile or sort of irrational. Mm-hmm. And and the baby step would be like try showing a little bit of that. But even that, when I say, oh, just just assert yourself and kind of show up a little bit of it, just feel it. It feels terrifying to them to so oh, imagine yeah. starting. Because mm-hmm. the other reality is that they worry that once they start letting a little bit go, like it's not a siphon; it becomes like a dam. Yeah. And they get scared of like, they've been so good at the self regulation for so long, which is fucking toxic, by the way. Like it's terrible for your body and terrible for every system of yours to be holding back all this. Um, true emotionality, and so what I've said, which works for some and doesn't, so take it or leave it. But I've said, make it explicit that you're about to experiment with that mm-hmm. spectrum. So, for example, if you're going to cry, say, "I'm going to cry, but don't wor- please don't cater to it. I'm just, I just need to emote. It. I'm okay. I'm in control of it, but I actually need to just let these tears out. Or I'm about, I'm going to be a little bit more assertive than usual. I'm trying something out. Like if you can, if yeah. you have that kind of a culture, it's a nice way to. So I just couch the experiment in a way that lets it be safed or sort of constrained into a, into a sort of safe environment for you to be trying it out because you've said, you've kind of pointed at it. Mm-hmm. And so like, this is actually something that I'm testing and working on.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to just, um I think, I think that's a really, some really good advice and I, that's something that we often do with any new practice is we say like, we're going to try this yeah. thing. It's an experiment. And that way it keeps people from like immediately getting defensive of, oh, no, we don't want to do this new practice forever. I think also not to put all of the onus on the people who are feeling like they can't be authentic. On the other side, if you're listening to this and you're a leader, it is absolutely part of your role to see where you are or are not creating spaces that are authentic mm-hmm. and like look around and see are there probably people on your team who are feeling like they can't be honest in a meeting or speak up at some moments? And if so, what can you do to start breaking that down a little bit?
1: Yes, that's definitely true. It is absolutely your responsibility to do that.
0: Yeah. At the at the end of the film, it's revealed that Roz has been leading an undercover operation this whole time.
3: None of this ever happened, gentlemen.
0: And I don't want to see any paperwork on this. And even though Mike and Sully have saved the day, she basically tells them to cover it up. Don't talk about it. Right. Is this a good approach? What would we prefer to see instead? I mean, no, this is not a good approach. (laughs) The obvious
1: answer is like, no, don't cover up the crazy, crazy uh, alternative business model that they're exploring that is evil. Um, and what would have been good instead is to expose it.
2: I yeah. Mean, for me, it feels
1: I, relatively binary, but maybe there's more nuance <laughs> to it, no. but I'm extreme in the way I well, think Well, <laughs> I guess I was
2: just going to say, like, yes, expose it. I... I'm trying to be careful because I don't ever want to recommend that people keep this kind of information in the dark. I think expose it, but be really careful about having the whole story and being comfortable answering questions about it. I think that's all I would say. We were just working with a company that was going through a potential sale and acquisition. And there are always going to be moments where like you can't give out every single piece of information about your company to everyone because stories will happen, people will get nervous, and you do have to control the message in some way or another. So be really thoughtful about Definitely share. Be really thoughtful about when the right moment is. Give people time to process and ask questions. That's what I'll say.
0: Thankfully, at the end of the film, just as it looks like everybody's going to be out of a job because the CEO has been arrested and they're going to all be out of jobs, uh, Sully realizes that children's laughter is actually a far more potent source of energy mm-hmm. than than screams. And the company pivots, essentially, to becoming a, a laugh factory. If your organization is going through a similar change, through a similar pivot, how do you as a leader support your team? Yeah, this is like, this
2: work would be right up our alley,
0: <laughs> I feel
2: like. Um, <laughs> but I... I guess I think you need to realize that people have been working in the same way for many years. There's going to be a lot of resistance to this change because you're expecting them to com- to go into work and do a completely different thing. In the past, they were scaring kids. Now they're trying to make them laugh. It's a very different skill set um, and understanding that they'll probably need some new training. They'll need some support. They might feel uh, like they don't have the skills to do this. Not everyone is a, a comedian like Billy Crystal. <laughs> um I think that's an important piece, uh, understanding that you're losing a bit of your old legacy. Maybe people really love that, like the scaring children <laughs> style of work. Who knows? Um, I think there's just, there's a lot of considerations that you need to put in place to help people transition and understand that it's not going to be this like flip of a switch. Tomorrow we are a completely new company because we've uncovered a new way of doing things. I'm sure a lot of people will be excited that they get ten times more work out of the same amount of input, but there will be a lot of not people monsters that are resistant i'm sure
1: yeah i think that's perfectly put and i would say on the non people side the i assume that those sc- scream holders would need to be recalibrated to be for laughs like i, I there's an i imagine that there's all these technological implement- sure. implications of which we see so much of right like we see all sorts of massive technological implementations that ideally run alongside the culture change but usually the pacing is different um there's all these kind of snafus delays et cetera. the upskilling may not be exactly what we imagined at first so i think there's also that this like mm-hmm. whole side of it that's much more infrastructural and less to do with um directly to do with the people and the culture design but we will often run parallel to changes like that and if you can get those those systems to talk right like if you can get the the a- the CHRO and the CTO to get in a room and understand how they're um, big picture strategies can work together it's really ideal
2: yeah yeah i think what you're touching on what we often say to our clients is that change is hardest in the middle because you are in the mess of like figuring yes. out all these pieces and there will probably be points where they're like well maybe we should just go back to scaring kids this is too hard yeah um but you have to figure out a way to get through that moment and, and get on the other side of it
1: i would say the other the other thing is that um this is an interesting one because it's so obviously better, right? Like mm-hmm. the less extractive, the less, you know, we assume, right, screams are bad and laughs are much better. Uh-huh. And like even the culture we see at the end is like there's balloons and it's happier. So, yeah, it's better. So I think in in what we see is when, when the change is clearly and objectively for the better the leader gets really frustrated with the fact that employees Mm -hmm. still find the change hard because change is change regardless of if the from to is obviously better for everyone including the the employees the customers etc it's still hard like it's still to jane's point if they've done scaring kids their entire career to learn a whole new skill set even if the output is so much more fun and better and more engaging is is really hard
2: yeah, I mean your some of your top performers might become your worst. Like yep. Randall is probably not equipped for making kids laugh. <laughs> I wouldn't think.
1: Yeah, that's exactly
0: right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So final question, per usual. Sully, who is now the CEO of Monsters Incorporated, he is taking a more consultative leadership approach, which is which is great. It's exactly what we want to see. He has asked for our advice. We're coming into Monsters Inc. Where are we going first? What's the first thing they were going to either teach um, or like he's asked for our advice. Mm -hmm. What do we advise Monsters, Inc.? What's the first thing they should do?
2: I think the first thing we would do, like if we were literally put on this project tomorrow, is uh, a talk around change and why change is hard and what makes change easier and just like make everyone an expert in change. I feel like that would be our first step because that's they're about to completely flip this company like upside down. And change everything. So
1: I think, I think maybe the first thing I would do is ask him where the hell the women are.
2: <laughs> yeah, that too. That too. Like, How do we get a little m- like more if diversity? I if I walked yeah like
1: if I walked into a company like that and the only women there were Roz and Celia and every <laughs> single person on the front line was a man, I would be like, are is. I mean, now it's possible that well, the women society. Funny, so <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> like now, they're really not going to hire any. But I, I mean, it would be one thing if, like, I don't know if Monstropolis. Monstropolis may, in fact, be somewhere where there is only twenty percent women. So then I would be. Sure. But that. So my first question would literally be, where the hell are the mm-hmm. women? Mm-hmm. And then I would get into a...
2: <laughs> fairness. <enough. laughs> <laughs>
1: that's that's a pretty big issue
0: issue for me. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to Work of Fiction. Don't forget to subscribe for future updates and leave us a rating if you like what you heard. Find more episodes or get in touch with us at workoffiction.fm.